All right, we're in Revelation chapter 5 tonight, and last week we kind of had a different message. We were just looking at facts, we were just looking at the scene and the symbolism that was contained there. Uh, Revelation is a little different because at the end of the, uh, of the message, sometimes it's hard to know what you're supposed to go and do after that, you know. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of uh, sometimes just confusion. These are spoken in a mysterious way and a lot of symbolism. Everything's cloaked. Uh, and, and symbolism and representation, things like that, pictures. And, uh, and so, we, you know, we're just trying to unlock those and, and ask the Spirit of God to help open our eyes and understanding to what's going on. So it's not, it's not always a practical message that we're going to find uh, as we're studying through the book of Revelation. But I think the practical sense comes when we understand that everything that is written in the book of Revelation is true no matter how difficult it may be to understand and we understand that it's true, and, uh, and we also need to understand that it is imminent, that, that this could happen immediately, and it could happen at any time. And when we understand those, that this is true and that this is going to happen, and maybe soon, then the practicality of this comes in us helping others to prepare, others around us to prepare for uh, the coming of the Lord and the days that are ahead. Now, chapter 4, as we, as we looked at last week, is in many ways a setup for chapter 5. We, we see this heavenly throne. We see all the symbolism and, uh, and things around it. We're introduced to that heavenly scene in chapter 4 by a detailed description of the throne room and perhaps even some heavy symbolism of the judgments that are about to take place throughout the rest of this book. And so in chapter 4, we're given a vision of the throne. We're given a vision of the one who sat upon it, of all the details of his surroundings, the songs, the music, the worship, uh, all the things that surround him. And then in chapter 5, our eyes begin to focus on specifics. John looks more closely, and there's something in the hand of the one who is sitting upon that throne we find in chapter 5, that in his hand was a book. Right. This book is very important. And that's, we're going to spend most of our time talking about this book and the importance of this book. And uh, we're going to consider what it was and why it was so important to all creation. And so I want you to help uh, me consider that this heavenly scene once more. This is part two of the heavenly scene. And tonight we're looking at the sealed book. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer and ask for His, uh, His guidance and direction throughout the message. I want to ask Brother Ricky, would you please lead us in prayer again? things tonight from chapter 5, and the first thing we're going to look at is the sealed book. Now, I want to talk about this book, or as we're going to find, was actually it was actually a scroll, and we're going to see that in verse 1. Now, let's look at chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. All right, so he says, I saw on the right hand of him a book that was written on the inside and on the outside. And this book or this scroll was sealed with seven seals. Now, the English transition here or translation here is a little confusing. 
But most of us understand now that this wasn't a book like, like a book that, uh, that the Lord was holding in His hands, that God was holding in His hand. But this was actually, uh, well, it was a scroll. And, and I think most of us have seen a scroll either in a movie or whatever it is. But if you don't know what a scroll is, just basically it's a long piece of parchment that's been written all the way across and uh, there's usually, I don't know what you call it, I guess you call it a spool or, or something on each side. And you roll that together and, and usually you just kind of keep rolling those out together and just scroll on through the entire piece of parchment. Now, the parchment may stretch from, uh, uh, from the organ to the piano or even further, depending on how big the book is. But it's, uh, it's all rolled up, it's all scrolled up. And that's what we see, there is a scroll in the hand of God as he's sitting on the throne here. Now we're going to talk about a little bit more about that scroll. I used a picture. I want you to notice here in verse in verse one that not only was it written on the inside and outside, so it was written front and back, but it was also it says it was sealed with seven seals. And I used to picture those seals and this scroll uh, as being placed intermittently throughout the scroll so that it could be open to a certain point. Let's say that uh, usually they would lay it out on a table when you got ready to read this thing. And so let's say that you were scrolling over and uh, you unlock the first seal, which would be like a piece of wax that was placed uh, over the, uh, the binding there where the, the two pieces of scroll come together, uh, those two rolls come together, they would place a, a seal there. And so that had to be unlocked. And then you could only scroll so far before you hit another seal. And then that seal had to be unlocked. And then you scroll on down and, and, until you get all seven seals unlocked. Now, that was the way that I used to look at this. But the more I studied the scripture, I'm beginning to see that this was seven seals not placed intermittently throughout the scroll, but this was, this was seven seals that had to be broken before the scroll could even be opened. And so instead of it being placed, you know, just, just strategically throughout the scroll, we're talking about before you can even open the scroll up, seven seals have to be unlocked. Seven wax seals. And, uh, you know, if, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Just look it up on, on the Internet. If you have to, Google some pictures of it. Uh, but these wax seals, the, the king would usually put his signet in. It would be hot wax. And then he would use a ring or a signet uh, to put his imprint uh, on, the, on the seal itself. And that, that keep the scroll or whatever the parchment was from being open. That, whether it was a letter or just an official document, uh, that seal had to be broken. And uh, so that's what we see. This scroll and this vision uh, had seven seals. And so we're talking from top to bottom uh, sealed with seven seals. Now, the majority of Revelation contains three series of seven. There are seven seals found in chapter 6 and, uh, and on into to chapter 8. There are seven trumpets that are going to be mentioned. And then there are seven vials or what we would call bowls uh, that are going to be mentioned as well. So three series of sevens. And so it makes sense that on one side of this scroll, we have the, the trumpet judgments written. On the other side, the bowl judgments written. But before either could be opened, those seven seals have to be unlocked. Those seven seals have to be broken. Now again, just, just so that we understand, remember that this scroll, once it's all laid out, once it's all rolled out, it's written on the front and on the back. Okay? 
Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as far as contracts were concerned in just a second. Uh, and then, it, but before you can get to those, it's sealed with seven seals. So I think it's interesting that uh, we also have seven seals in chapter 6. And then uh, we're going to read about seven trumpets. We're going to read about seven bowls later. So perhaps that what this represented was the trumpet judgments being written on one side of this parchment. Once you broke the seals open, the, the judgments, uh, the trumpet judgments on one side, the bowl judgments on the other side. I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but that's just the best that I can make. And like I said, after reading all these commentaries, I figured out that my opinion was just as good as anybody else's. So uh, we're just going to, to look at what the, uh, the word says here. And I think it fits uh, that the trumpet judgments might be written on maybe the inside, the bowl judgments written on the outside. But before you can get to those, those seven seals have to be loose. Therefore, the image of this scroll could be pictorial of what is coming next in the book of Revelation. So now that we know what's next, we know that we're going to see seven seals. We know that we're going to go through seven trumpet judgments. We know that there's seven bowl judgments. um, And and knowing that now, maybe we can view this scroll that was in the hand of God as being pictorial of the three sets of judgments that's about to be poured out upon the earth. So what he was holding in his hand right there may have been symbolic or pictorial of everything that we're about to read Uh, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Am I making any sense? Okay. Because y'all's faces are kind of look exactly how I feel like it's coming out of my mouth. Like, hmm? So I just want to make sure that I'm saying this right. All right, now many scholars view this scroll as a redemption contract that has to be open, read, and the requirements requirements met before the earth could be redeemed. Now, this is very interesting as well. So there's one way that we can look at this scroll that's in the hand of God. We can look at it as being representative of the different judgments that are about to take place. But it's also interesting, and I didn't put these scriptures in here, uh, but back in the Old Testament especially, what would happen is when when someone made a contract, let's say that a... um, a piece of land was to be bought. There's actually a, uh, an example of this in the book of Jeremiah. You can go look that up if you want. Some of you may have that reference already there in the book of Revelation. But if you go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was going to buy a piece of land. And if I can remember the story correctly, basically in order for him to buy the piece of land, then you know he had to take a, a scroll or a deed that was, uh, that was written. And this, this scroll or this deed was written on the inside and it was written on the outside. Now what they would do is, perhaps on the inside, they would write all the contents that were about to be bought. Everything that was about to be purchased would be written on one side. While on the outside, when you turn the scroll over and read there, it would have all the requirements for this particular thing to be bought. Now, Jeremiah's may not have had very many words. It may have said on the inside, a piece of land, you know, and here's the dimensions of it. On the outside, uh, it may have been written whatever the price was that was required for that land to be bought. Now, what many people view this scroll that was in God's hand, uh, view it as the deed and title to earth, to humanity, to everything that we see here. Everything that Adam lost had to be redeemed. And so perhaps on the inside was written everything that needed to be redeemed. Everything that had to be uh, bought 
And on the back side uh, of that scroll being written the requirements of that, uh, of that purchase. Now, what's interesting is before anybody could open this scroll, before anybody could loose those seals, he had to be worthy to do that. Now, what that means is he had to have the full intention of purchasing everything written on the inside, and he had to be willing to pay the, every bit of the price that was written on the backside. Now, I want you to think about our redemption. Talking about your souls. Talking about this, this world, this earth. All of creation has to be redeemed because of sin. Now, that when we get this picture in our mind, it, it gives us a vivid image of what we're about to see throughout the rest of chapter 5. So let's move forward just a little bit. Uh, in our scriptures here. We see the shout in verse 2. Now we see the, the book that's written on the inside and outside. And then in verse 2, he says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Who can redeem? Who is worthy to take this scroll out of the hand of God? Who is ready and worthy uh, to purchase everything that is written therein? Now, whoever was to take this book out of God's hand would have to be worthy, meaning able to open all the seals and to meet all of the redemption requirements written therein. And so the call was clear. Who is worthy? And then we see the answer given in verse 3, the silence. He says, And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Kind of like when I ask a discussion question. <laughs> all heaven, all earth, all hell is silent. You know, That's what he says. Who is worthy to open this book? Who is worthy to loose the seals? Is anyone in heaven worthy? Not a voice was heard. Is anyone on earth worthy? No one. Any, any below worthy to take this book and open the seals? And not one was worthy. It says, No man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, nor to look thereon. Heaven, earth, and hell stood silent. Not even one was worthy to redeem. None of the angels, none of the dead saints, not Abraham, not Joseph, not Moses, not Daniel, not David. No one uh, uh, in heaven, no person on earth, and certainly no one in hell was worthy to open it, to read it, or it says even to look upon it. Now, if no one is worthy to open the book, let me fill you in on something. We are all in serious trouble. If nobody can open this book, if no one is worthy to look thereon, and to open these seals. That leads us to the next thing. We see the slain lamb in verses 4 through 14. Now I want you to look at the sorrow in verses 4 and 5. It says there, And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look 
thereon. John said, I, I wept about this. And we'll look more at what he means by that in just a second. And then in verse 5 it says, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, I don't know how much John understood about what was going on, but he knew enough that he began to weep when no one was worthy to open this book. I think there was an eerie silence that fell across that scene that day. Fear, sorrow, trembling, because not even one was worthy to open the book. Now, this is an interesting word. When we look, that says he began to weep. This is interesting because it emphasizes uh, more the noise that he was making than it does the tears that he was crying. What that tells me is that John was wailing. He was screaming and sobbing because no one was able to take the scroll and redeem. And then one of the elders calmed him down. He says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to take the book, to open it, and to loose the seals thereof. That leads us to the Savior in verses 6 through 7. Now I want us to read those verses. It says uh, in verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Now I want you to uh, notice, it says, Send forth in all the earth. I want you to notice where this lamb was standing. It says that he was standing in the midst, right in the middle, uh, in the center of those four beasts of the elders. It says there was a lamb standing there as it had been slain. Now, what else did we find that was in the middle of those four living creatures, in the middle of those 24 elders? Who was there in chapter 4? In chapter 4, it was the one on the throne, wasn't it? But he says, I look now, and I'm thinking just standing right in front of that throne, was a lamb having been slain. Now if you look at verse 7, it says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. We find that in verse 7. Now the elder had told John of a victorious warrior, a lion, a king from Judah, that had prevailed to open the scroll and to break the seven seals. He says, calm down, don't worry. Listen, someone is worthy. The king, the tribe, the tribe of Judah is worthy to take this. The elder used the word behold, which means look. And so when, the, when I want you to picture this scene. A, a, a herald angel has come out and he has asked all, everybody present, who is worthy to take this book and to open it? And I want you to picture that throne room as best as we can remember from last week. Picture what's going on. There's a multitude out there and, and they're beholding everything that's going on. And John realizes that nobody can take this book. He begins crying. I'm thinking he's falling on his face and he is just sobbing and screaming and wailing. And an elder comes up, puts his hand on him and says, don't worry. Don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, behold, he is worthy to open the scroll. And it says that when he said that, John turned and looked. This is the second time in the book of Revelation so far that he turned to behold Jesus. Anybody remember, it's okay to talk. Anybody remember the first time that he turned 
and saw Jesus in the book of Revelation. I'll give you a hint. It's in chapter 1. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. Remember, he was on the Isle of Patmos. He had, he had gone into this vision and uh, he heard a voice behind him. And remember, it says that he turned and when he turned, he beheld who was standing there. And, and what did he describe? He described a man who was clothed completely in white, who had hair as white as wool, eyes like a flame of fire, a two-edged sword going from his mouth, uh, feet like fine breasts. And, and he was standing in the middle of seven golden candlesticks. Remember that glorious t- description that John gave of Jesus the first time that he turned and beheld. And so it says here that the elder says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this time when he turned, he turned to see a ferocious lion of a man. But instead, the man he saw looked like a slaughtered lamb. Now I don't want you to forget That the same John who wrote this was the John that while all others had forsaken and fled from Christ on that night of His crucifixion, John was the one who stuck around. Peter didn't have to see what John saw. The other eleven didn't have to see, the other ten didn't have to see what John saw that night. John was there at the crucifixion. And as horrible and as horrid as we can try to explain the imagery of what Jesus would have looked like on the cross, John had to see it. A man he loved. A man he had dedicated his entire life to. He saw him unrecognizable hanging from that cross. He heard His garbled voice calling down to Him and saying, Behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. This was the most horrifying image that John had ever seen in his entire life. When this elder said, Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah, I think he was... He was turning to see a king, but what he saw when he turned was that same image that he had seen that night on the cross. And this is the way he described it. It wasn't a lion. It said it looked like a lamb that had been slain. The word slain there means slaughtered. It was a bloody, bruised, beaten sight that he turned and saw that day. I cannot imagine the, the flood of emotion that overwhelmed John when he saw what he turned and saw that in that vision. Right. That was perhaps the most gory and frightening scene that John had ever witnessed. But when he turned, that's what he saw. Jesus, who was battered, bloodied, 
and bruised. But I want you to understand, that is what made Jesus victorious over sin and death and worthy to open the book. You see, because I don't know what was written on the inside. And I don't know what was written on the outside. But I know that there was only one in heaven and in earth who was able to open that book and to open those seals. And when John saw who was worthy, it wasn't some great king. It wasn't some, some, someone on a glorious throne. It was a lamb. It was a man who had been beaten and battered and torn. He saw the crucified Christ. But that's what made him worthy to redeem everything that Adam has lost. I'll tell you what John saw when he turned. He saw his Savior. That leads us to the song in verses 8 through 14. If you look at verse 8, it says, And when he had taken the book, now Jesus turns, this, this vision that we have of Christ, he turns bloodied, his back would have been torn and beaten, his bones exposed, his face unrecognizable, but he turns and he grabs the, uh, the scroll out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. It says in verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. This was different than what we heard in chapter 4. They sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. And I beheld... And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, the beasts and the elders, and the number of them, see if you can calculate this, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Singing worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I don't know what John saw that night. But it was glorious. The voice of millions, maybe, of angels, saints, singing praises to the Lamb. You know, that image that I've tried to portray tonight may be something that we would want to turn our face from. We would not even want to look at they were singing praises because they knew because of what He did at that cross that redemption was available to every person, every nation, every race, every language had the opportunity to be redeemed because of the blood of the Lamb. You know, tonight I think we have just a solemn reminder of what it took, of what it cost for your salvation, for my salvation. 
for the hope that we're going to find at the end of this book. You see, because here he's a bloodied lamb, but he's going to return one day as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And that's the vision that we'll see when, when all eyes behold him. That day John saw him crucified. 